Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host. With me this week again is my good friend Matthew. I'm glad you're here. How was your week? My week was great. How was yours? You sound like you're being facetious right now. <laughs> no, it was good. I was uh, I was in Quebec again all week. Quebec. Did you make it to Lac Megantique? I did not. I needed to handle some stuff on the day that I needed. I wanted to go. So I'll be there in, in a month again. I'm going to go back out. Cool. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. The taste that kicks your mouth's ass. Oh, <laughs> it kicks your mouth's ass. Yeah. Your mouth has an ass? I don't know. It kicks your mouth's ass. It tastes good. Fair enough. Like any other region, Canada has its share of stories of fantastical creatures that may or may not exist. Dark Poutine has covered a few of them. In episode 25, we learned of Swift Runner, believed to be possessed by the cannibalistic spirit known as Wendigo. We talked about Ogopogo, the giant serpent in Okanagan Lake, in episode 113. And of course, in episode 131, we gave you a primer on the most famous cryptid of all, Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot, in western Canada and the United States. In this episode, you'll learn about some of Canada's lesser-known cryptids. However, they are just as fascinating as the others you are aware of, and in some cases, even more terrifying. This is Dark Poutine, episode 175, Creepy Creatures and Canadian Cryptids. Our first fantastical Canadian creature comes from Quebec, the Lougarou which translates from French roughly to werewolf. According to some sources, in Europe since medieval times, especially France and Germany, some of the most vile criminals dragged before the courts, having been accused of horrendous and violent murders, had a secret. Their true identity as Lugaru would emerge as confessions were tortured out of them. During the 1760s, in the Gévaudan region of France, one weird beast was rumored to have killed more than a hundred people. There have been a number of books, podcasts, and TV shows about that case. Many suspected Lugarus, believed to be supernaturally powerful, were put to death in horrific ways to ensure that they would not return to feed again. 
Terrified Europeans invented methods and devices they believed would ward off the monsters. One invention in particular were weir whistles, ornately carved dog whistles said to soothe the savage beast. It's believed that, to escape persecution in Europe, many of these creatures secretly emigrated from France in their human form, hiding amid the French pioneers on ships bound for New France, later heading south with the expelled Acadians into the bayous of Louisiana. For eons in what is now known as North America, many years before European colonization, there have been stories passed down verbally of shape-shifting animal-humans throughout indigenous folklore. It is unclear whether indigenous skinwalkers and the European Lugaru have any genetic relationship at all, but it's fair to say that they are similar. Lugaru are said to be nocturnal hunters using the cover of darkness to hide their movements, hunting by the light of the moon and relying on the element of surprise and enormous strength to rip their prey limb from limb. If a hungry Lugaru is unable to find anything living to devour, there are endless stories of the creatures raiding fresh graves in cemeteries, feasting on the recently departed. Although humans are the preferred delicacy, Lugaru have been known to target livestock of unsuspecting farmers. Many settlers have been horrified, awakening to a gory mess in their barns, pens, and coops, with cows, horses, pigs, and chickens torn apart by ravenous Lugaru. Satiated after a night's feeding, the Lugaru will change back into their human form and go about their business anonymously, often disguised as beggars, amid people who they'd eyed up as future meals, especially those who treated them unkindly as they begged. The first mention of a Lugaru in a Canadian newspaper was printed in the Quebec Gazette on July 14, 1776. It was a warning to the public about a Lugaru in the area. Translated from French, pardon the flowery language, quote, By accounts from St. Rock, near Cap Muraska, we learned that there is a Lugaru wandering about that neighborhood in the form of a beggar, which to the talent of persuading people to believe what he himself is ignorant of and promising what he cannot perform adds that of obtaining what he desires. It is said that this animal came by the assistance of two hind legs to Quebec on the 17th of last month and set out from hence the 18th following with a design to pursue his errand to Montreal. This beast is said to be as dangerous as that which appeared last year in the country of Gévaudin, wherefore it is recommended to the public to be as cautious of him as it would be a ravenous wolf. A few months later, on December 10, 1776, another article in the same paper mentions the Lugaro again. Quote, From Kamaraska on December 2nd, we learn that a certain werewolf who has been riding in this province for several years and who had caused a lot of damage in the district of Quebec received several considerable assaults last October by various animals that had been armed and unleashed against this monster, and in particular, on November 3rd, that he received such a furious blow by a small, lean animal that the wound was believed to be fatal, since he remained withdrawn for a while in his den to the great satisfaction of the public. But we have just learned, by the most fatal misfortune, that this animal is not completely defeated, that, on the contrary, it is beginning to reappear more furious than ever and makes terrible carnage wherever it strikes. So beware of the tricks of this malicious beast and be careful not to fall between its legs. End quote. It is believed that Lugaru are human beings who have made pacts with the devil in exchange for the ability to shapeshift, sometimes into animals other than wolves depending on their mood or need at the time. Other sources believe that an individual becomes a Lugaru as the result of a curse due to failure to meet some dogmatic religious expectation. 
According to Todd Fisher's book, A Canadian Bestiary, quote, it was said that any man in New France who didn't go to Easter Mass for seven years in a row would turn into such a being, end quote. It was also believed that a person making a false conversion to Christianity, whatever that means, would create a curse where the person would become a Lugaru. According to a Wired magazine article, in many traditions, though, if you want to transform into a werewolf, you can simply wear wolf pelts, though in Germany, wearing the skin of a hanged man would also do the trick, end quote. Even a sin as simple as planting potatoes on a Sunday could offend God so much that you would be doomed to become a Lugaru. I myself have done a lot of dumb stuff, but as far as I'm aware, I have yet to turn into a werewolf. Unlike fictional werewolves, the Lugaru do not change involuntary from human to wolf at night during a full moon and silver bullets are not needed to kill them. Any bullet will do. The issue with dispatching a Lugaru is that once you've dispatched it in its animal form and then it's transformed back into a human, you must kill it again. One surefire method often used is decapitation and then dismemberment, just to be sure. According to Mental Floss, quote, if a Lugaru attacks you, you're supposed to throw rocks at it or stab it with a knife. If you can manage to draw blood, the curse will be broken and the monster will revert to its human form. Afterwards, neither side can talk about it or you both run the risk of turning into a Lugaru. Uh, yeah. Um, I'd prefer that method to the dismemberment and decapitation one, frankly. Skeptics, boo, believe that Lugarus do not exist at all, but that they are a myth that is deeply rooted in religion and find its origins in humanity's ongoing struggles between our baser instincts and desires with what is moral and right. It is plainly a story of good versus evil. Tales of werewolves serve religious ideals by drawing a clear line between the right behaviors to adopt and the bad ones that have consequences. Some have explained away the existence of the Lugaru, citing the human response to the rabies virus. In the essay, The Origin of the Werewolf Superstition by Carolyn Taylor Stewart, published in 1909 by the University of Missouri, Stewart relates an anecdote from the oral traditions of the Blackfoot peoples. Quote, It is said that wolves, which in former days were extremely numerous, sometimes went crazy and bit every animal they met with sometimes even coming into camps and biting dogs, horses, and people. Persons bitten by a mad wolf generally went mad too. They trembled and their limbs jerked, and they made their jaws work and foamed at the mouth, often trying to bite other people, End quote. However, stories of the Lugaru endure, so if you have to walk through the forests of Quebec alone on a moonlit night, it's best to keep your head on a swivel. There may be a lycanthrope about. Oh! Right? I used to be a werewolf, but I'm all right now. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on the Lugaru, Matthew? I love werewolf stories. Me too. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this when you're talking. And if you think about when this these myths first occurred, mm -hmm. right? And this is sort of Joseph Campbell area. Oh, yeah. I, I love that I, stuff. I will probably do a very bad job. But we were as much neighbors as two wild creatures as we were humans back then mm -hmm. we're almost equal in a way at least in in terms of the numbers sure and that made me got me thinking of you know my great great grandparents there's a lot of stories written about them because they're well known mm -hmm. in, in their area and i've read some articles and they had this farmhouse at a crossroads so a lot of people used to stop there and, and sure. things like that yep and one story I can remember reading was when all these wolves circled the farmhouse. Oh, weird. Right? And this farmhouse stayed in my family um, for years, so I know exactly the farmhouse, right? Mm -hmm. And there are no more wolves in that area of Canada anymore. Weird. And in fact, I think my father shot one of the last ones. Oh. 
there was a um, there was a massive wolf that was killing livestock in mm -hmm. the 70s. Wow. And my dad got it oh. and was in the newspaper. And as a kid, I used to lay on its fur in front of a fireplace watching TV in the 70s. Oh, that, that is kind of creepy. But well, it's you know, it's how we grew up. You know, right. my, my yeah. everyone was a hunter, yeah. right? And he didn't just go out to like kill it for the sake of it. No. Like it was killing livestock. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a different time now, right? I think we would probably sedate it and take it somewhere. Yeah, uh, that's what I would do anyway. But this is the seventies, and we didn't give a shit. Yeah, um, it's true. <laughs> so anyway, my my point is, you know, if you're that close to the wild and they're your neighbors. Mm -hmm. I, I like this thought that you put in there of, you know, if you, if you're going with your base, base instincts or you're not sort of lifting yourself up to your, right. your higher ideal, you mm -hmm. can become one of these. Yes. You know, you, you know, you talk about Catholicism, but I think it's sort of, it's in all cultures, this sort of, cause there's also that, that one little point of, you know, if you're not nice to a homeless person, right, you, you might, which, and I kind of like that part of the story. Yeah. Hey, like treat people with respect because I might eat you later. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You never know. The toes you step on today might be connected to the ass you have to kiss tomorrow. It's karma, bitches. Yeah. Our next mythical creature is one that my elderly Uncle Don has spoken to me at length about. He's obsessed with them. It is a creature that comes from indigenous traditions from all corners of Canada and the United States. It's called the Thunderbird. No, it's not your granddad's big boat of a car, but its namesake, a giant bird with a wingspan dwarfing that of any other bird. The Thunderbird is said to be the largest creature ever to fly, up to 70 feet across from wingtip to wingtip, which dwarfs that of the common wandering albatross with its spread of a whopping 11 feet. The creature got its name from the deafening thundering sound it makes when flapping its giant wings. Some traditions believe that it was able to shoot deadly bolts of lightning from its beak or eyes while using the drafts from storms to stay in flight during the spring rainy season, when sightings tend to be more likely, as it is then that birds tend to migrate north. Sometimes, the Thunderbird is pictured with two heads. Tales of the Thunderbird have been passed down again through verbal storytelling, but can also be seen in numerous visual mediums like pictographs dating back thousands of years on totem poles and in works of art. The Thunderbird is one of the most dominant icons in North American indigenous art and legends. The Belakula Salish peoples call it Alkuntam. It is Enemiki to the Ojibwa Algonquins, and the Mi'kmaq referred to it as Kaktuguak. Kaktuguak was apparently a thunder being who was able to transform into a giant bird and with his family flew high above Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, and portions of the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec. Historian Marion Robertson wrote of Kaktuguak in 1973, relating a story told to her by Mi'kmaq elders. Quote, Kaktuguak, his wife, and their son, Kaktuguasis, Little Thunder, lived in the woods. Young Thunder's adventures in his long search for a bride, accompanied by other supernatural beings, Pine Chopper, Windblower, and Swiftfoot, kicked up many a whirlwind in the old land of the Mi'kmaq. As well as Old Thunder and Young Thunder, there were six Thunder Boys who, as birds, flew high in the sky and made rain, thunder, and lightning. End quote. The fossil record shows instances of massive flying creatures. From the Cryptozoology Wiki, quote, The prehistoric vulture-like Argentavis magnificens had a wingspan of around 7 meters, or 23 feet, and was capable of flight. The massive Cretaceous-era pterosaur, Quetzalcoatlus northropi, or perhaps Hatsgoteryx thambima, 
was the largest known flying creature in history with a wingspan of around 12 meter or 40 feet. However, the Thunderbird's identity as a pterosaur is unlikely because the pterosaur is extinct. A pterosaur's wings were made of a membrane of skin stretched over a bony finger similar to a bat's wings. From Kuyamunguinstitute.com, quote, The native Indians of the Pacific Northwest Coast always lived along the shores and never ventured inland to the mountains. Legend has it that the Thunderbird, a mighty god in the form of a giant supernatural bird, lives in the mountains. The Quileute tribe of Washington State considered a cave on Mount Olympus as the home of the Thunderbird, while the Coast Salish believed it is located on the Black Tusk Peak in British Columbia. It is thought that the Thunderbird never wants anyone to come near its home. If native hunters get too close, the Thunderbird will smell them and make a thunder sound by flapping its wings. It would also roll ice out of its cave and down the mountain with chunks breaking up into smaller pieces. Some tribes, such as the Kwakwakawak, believe that people once made a deal with the Thunderbird for its help during a food crisis, and in return, the tribe agreed to honor the Thunderbird for all time by making its image prominent in their Northwest Native American art. End quote. Drawing from witness descriptions, Mark A. Hall, cryptozoologist, suggested that the bird exhibits the following characteristics. Its wingspan measures 15 to 25 feet, 4.6 to 6 meters. It has a height of 4 to 8 feet, 1.2 to 2.4 meters. The plumage of this bird is dark, usually being brown, gray, or black. Its head and neck are bare, i.e. devoid of feathers. It kills and eats large game such as sheep, deer, caribou, moose, colts, dogs, and occasionally human beings. It has the outward appearance of a California condor, but displays predatory traits more consistent with those of a hawk. Its bill is curved and its feet are capable of carrying heavy loads. It breeds on crags in simple nests of sticks and leaves. It is long-living and slow-breeding, typically laying one to two eggs at a time. It's nocturnal and it's migratory. It travels south over the mountainous terrain during the fall and north over the same route during the spring. And we'll take a break right here. A thunderbird sounds like something that Godzilla should tangle with. <laughs> yes. Like Mothra. Yeah, but Godzilla always wins, doesn't he? It, well, it's true. Yeah, it seems that way. It, otherwise, it would be Mothra versus Godzilla yeah. instead of Godzilla versus this Mothra. This is true. Yeah. So you mentioned how it couldn't be a pterosaur. Yes. The P is on the porcelain. Yep. Um, because they're extinct. But yep. think of this, right? Fossils have been around forever. We didn't just suddenly find them. No, they've been around. Somebody sees a fossil mm -hmm. of this huge M mofo bird. Right. Right. Uh, and thinks, doesn't know how old it is because mm -hmm. they don't have like carbon dating. Right. They because, think, because they're cave people. Yeah. They think it's a bone. Right. And then they don't also, you know, Judy Coy or Judy McCoy, the meteorologist, whatever her name was, you know, yeah. meteorologists don't exist. They don't know how thunder and lightning happens. Right. And the stories are created. Right. So exactly. I, I think it could have been actually, you know, started when somebody saw this. And, you know, some people say dragons were created because of, of dinosaur, people seeing dinosaur bones. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. yeah. That totally makes sense. I really do try to avoid too many stories based in Toronto. There's a lot of resentment against the non-Torontonians in Canada based on the unkind perception that Torontonians see themselves as the center of the Canadian culture. One Toronto-based story gets an eye-roll emoji from Dark Poutine listeners. 
Two in a row seems to be a crime punishable by a bad iTunes review, and three in a row, I shudder to think of the retribution that I would suffer. All that said, the population of the greater Toronto area is over 7 million, and that's a good-sized chunk of the overall Canadian tally. To ignore stories from Toronto would be to bypass some truly interesting tales, and this is one of them. It's about a monster that lives under the city in its network of tunnels. For some centuries prior to the arrival of the Europeans in the area in 1632, Indigenous peoples inhabited the region we call Toronto. From the Natural Resources Canada website archived on the Wayback Machine at archive.org comes the apparent roots of the city's name. Quote, Linguistically, it originated as the Mohawk phrase Toronto, later modified by French explorers and mapmakers. Toronto means where there are trees standing in water, according to several Mohawk speakers and Aboriginal language expert John Steckley. Called York prior to its current moniker, Toronto was incorporated as a city in 1834. As the population grew, so did the city's infrastructure. In the 19th century, the city built an extensive sewer system to improve sanitation and complete with massive tunnels. Trees were raised and many of the creeks leading to the Humber, Rouge and Don rivers had to be rerouted into tunnels and culverts. Bridges were built across some of the rivers, but as the city expanded, they were buried under layers of earth to make way for new construction. As a result, underneath the city lies a network of small rivers, creeks and tunnels, some polluted by the city's sewage system, and home to who knows what. As well as many kilometers of subway tunnels, some disused and a haven for urban explorers willing to bypass danger-do-not-enter signs, there is also much of the current city underground in a network of tunnels called PATH. According to Toronto.ca website, the PATH is a mostly underground pedestrian walkway network in downtown Toronto that spans more than 30 kilometers of restaurants, shopping, services, and entertainment. With 3.7 million square feet of retail space, there are 1,200 restaurants, shops, and services in the path, generating roughly $1.7 billion in sales annually. An estimated 4,600 jobs are located in the path, and the path generates approximately $271 million in federal, provincial, and municipal tax revenue annually. There have been sightings of strange things underground throughout the years. The most famous of them came in the summer of 1978 when a 51-year-old man, who, afraid of ridicule, would only give his first name, Ernest. Ernest had an encounter with a small, strange creature while exploring tunnels that he entered in the Cabbage Town district of the city. Ernest spoke to the Toronto Sunday Sun newspaper for a story published in March of 1979. Ernest told the paper that he wanted to remain anonymous because people would think he was drunk, high, or crazy. Ernest insisted he was none of those. He knew what he'd seen, and it had terrified him. Ernest was a kind and compassionate man. He loved animals, and thanks to overhearing their mewing, had discovered a litter of feral kittens living just inside the entrance to a sewer tunnel near the apartment building on Parliament Street that he shared with his wife of 19 years. Ernest had been feeding and watering the little kitties for some time when he discovered that the count was off. One of the little ones was missing. Immediately, Ernest felt compelled to search for it and set about doing just that. Grabbing his flashlight, Ernest decided to crawl deeper into the tunnels to seek out the missing kitten. He crawled into the entrance that ran under a crumbling concrete slab. The narrow passageway branched off to the left after approximately 10 feet and had a downward slope after that. He could hear what he described as animal noises from deeper inside the tunnel. 
Ernest pressed on and was unable to see the end of the tunnel with his flashlight. It seemed to go on forever. He found the bones of an animal before his flashlight fell on something that scared the daylights out of poor Ernest. There was a small creature staring at him in the darkness. Ernest described the thing as, quote, long and thin, almost like a monkey, three feet long, large teeth, weighing maybe 30 pounds with slate gray fur. Its eyes were orange and red, slanted, end quote. As if finding some weird little entity in a darkened tunnel wasn't frightening enough, what happened next probably made poor Ernest crap his pants. From the Sunday Sun, quote, I'll never forget it, Ernest said. It said, Go away, go away, in a hissing voice, and then it took off down a long tunnel off to the side. I got out of there as fast as I could. I was shaking with fear. Ernest turned and scampered out of the tunnel as fast as he could, most likely fearing the thing might come back with reinforcements. Ernest went home and told his wife what he'd seen. She later told the Sun reporter that she believed every word he'd said. She'd never seen her husband so terrified and was certain that he'd not been drinking at all on the day of the sighting, although he'd been known to tip a few. Ernest had made the mistake of telling some others about what he'd seen and word leaked out to the press who then sought him out. Ernest was no attention-seeking liar. He didn't want to talk. Ernest would be 94 years old today, so odds are that he might not be around to explain himself. As he decided to use only his first name, we cannot track him down, nor any of his relatives, to inquire about what actually happened. There have been no officially reported sightings since Ernest's. No one else has seen that little tunnel monster. Law-bending urban explorers may have seen something in the tunnels, but as that pursuit is illegal, they've refused to report it. A sewer worker questioned at the time of the news report made some veiled statements about having encountered odd things in the city's sewer system when asked about the tunnel. He said, quote, People who work on the surface just don't know what it's like down there. It's a whole different world. Who would have thought a few years ago that people would live in sewers, and yet that's what they found in New York a few years back. Many have speculated about what Ernest might have seen that day. There are various ways to get into the tunnel networks that run beneath the city. Perhaps the entrance that Ernest discovered was a means of exit from the sewers for the creature to forage for food or supplies in the city. If Ernest's story was true, what the heck was it that he had encountered? Some suspect Ernest had run into one of the creatures that the Ojibwe peoples refer to as Memugwesi, or loosely translated, little people. According to Dibajimuin.com, the Memugwesi can do magnificent things whenever they wish. Legends say they can fly through the air and even live underwater if they want. Other stories say that they can dig deep into the earth and through the rocks as they please. If a person sees a Memugwesi and is kind to them, the Memugwesi will bring them good luck. It is said that there are three tribes of Memugwesi, those that live in the banks beside the streams and lakes, those that live near the flowers and plants, and those who guard the lands under the earth. This is the kind that Ernest must have met. The Memugwesi who live under the earth guard against serpents and monsters who live in the darkness below from coming to the surface and harming people. End quote. A similar tale was told by a friend to the author of the blog monocleblog.wordpress.com, and it was about an encounter near the Kettle Point First Nations Reserve in Ontario. Quote, Her cousin was walking through these woods when she saw a small man not three feet high, dressed in buckskin. They were both surprised to see each other and froze. She was afraid because he was baring his teeth and seemed upset. The little people are very careful about never being seen. He was so angry, he took hold of a nearby tree and shook it violently. The sound he made was between a shriek and a growl. She turned and ran off as fast as she could. No kidding, I'd be out of there pretty darn quick too. 
If one digs enough, you can uncover other encounters with Mimigwezi by the Indigenous peoples throughout the year. From Haunted Ontario 3, Ghostly Historic Sites, Inns and Miracles by Terry Boyle, quote, John Manitoba, the 70-year-old Ojibwa in 1929, recalled his encounter with a Mimigwezi, quote, At the north end of Perry Sound, in what white men call Split Rock Channel, there is a crag known to the Indians as Memogwesi's Crag. Some natives once set night lines there, but their trout were always stolen. At last, one of the men sat up all night to watch for the thief. At dawn, he saw a stone boat approaching, manned by two Memogwesi. One was a woman, the other was, was bearded like a monkey. The watcher awakened his companions and they pursued the stone boat, which turned and made for the crag. Just as the thieves reached it, the woman turned around and called to the Indians, Now you know who stole your trout. Whenever you want calmer weather, give us some tobacco, for this is our home. The boat and its occupants then entered the crag and disappeared, Manitowaba related. The Indians still offer tobacco to these Memogwesi whenever they pass their home. End quote. Perhaps it was Ernest's sighting that partially inspired the 1984 cult horror film Chud. CHUD stands for Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dweller. In the film, a New York City police officer and a homeless shelter manager join forces to investigate a series of disappearances and discover that the missing people have been hunted down by humanoid monsters that live below the city. Thanks to my time as a security guard and work in locations in film, I've had access to a number of -of out-of-the-way and creepy places, and I've not had direct encounter with anything like Ernest uh, talked about in his newspaper story. I'd have probably had to go see a psychiatrist afterward. He, he's probably met some horrible actors that, that acted this way. I have met really terrible people, <laughs> but uh, have you ever had any strange encounters like the uh, Toronto Tunnel Monster? And what are your thoughts on Ernest? I haven't had any strange encounters like that. Okay. Um, I did live in Toronto in the early... 90s, late 80s, yep. like first couple of years of the 90s, I used to live in a high rise first and I could actually go home, like from work, go, f- sorry, from home, go to work, go to the gym, go grocery shopping, all in that path system. Oh yeah, cool. It's massive. So you didn't even have to go outside. I didn't have to go outside, so in the wintertime it was great. Yeah. Um, it's kind of soulless down there, but it's massive. And I also lived after that in Cabbage Town. Okay. And the one thing I knew about Cabbage Town, if it was the same as when Ernest was around is unfortunately there is a lot of addicts. So I think what he saw was like a three-foot guy on PCP. (laughs) That could be. It could be. Get out of here. I'm busy. Doom angel dust. Cabbage Town was shady back then. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds pretty shady. Yeah. You've mentioned that there's, there, you have a few stories about that place, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. There are plenty more creepy creatures that people claim to have seen across our huge country. One is the giant Canadian spider bat. This is a giant flying humanoid bat creature approximately 5 feet tall. The only known sighting of it came in 2017 and was reported in the cryptid wiki. The eyewitness, anonymous, stated, quote, I don't know exactly what time it was, but it was dark. I live on a farm. I was walking home after putting our farm animals to bed when I passed an old, practically fallen down barn on our property. I glanced at the barn as I neared it and witnessed a huge, bulky, maybe winged thing duck away into the barn incredibly fast. It seemed to me like it cowered away when I looked at it, like it didn't want to be caught watching me. It was huge, 
seemingly too big to fit through the large open window at the front of the barn where it appeared to be perched. Its eyes were tiny and glistening white. Once I saw the thing, I ran as fast as I could for my house. I felt a sensation that made me feel like something was rushing toward me incredibly, but never reaching me. That's the only way I can explain it. I still don't like going outside on my own when it's dark, and that barn freaks me out a bit. Once in a while I hear noises from seemingly within it. It sounds like somebody setting down a pile of wooden planks over and over. It could be an echo from somewhere else on the property, but I don't know. I also feel that it may have just been my mind playing tricks on me. I feel like the barn is watching me whenever I pass it, end quote. And I don't know about you, but uh, not only would I not be going outside if there's a spider bat about, I'd probably be moving away. <laughs> this one's funny. Dude saw a stork in the night and he has an overactive imagination. Yeah, I think what dude did was he put a little uh, blotter on his tongue and he was flying pretty high and... and something like that. Yeah, saw yeah. something that wasn't actually something. But, you know, actually a farm in the middle of the night in the pitch black can be scary sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, we used to uh, go around my grandmother's barn at night and as, at dusk, the barn swallows would come out and swoop at you. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, whoa. Did you ever throw stuff up in the air and watch bats chase it? No, I have never done that. Yeah, we used to do that with our um, our uh, baseball gloves. We'd oh, throw fun. them in the air and the bats would like follow them for a while to see if it's if they could eat it, then they'd take off. Crazy. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't think the spider bat exists. I think somebody made that up. Yeah. One of the cutest and most memorable modern Canadian cryptids has to be the common North American house hippo. We learned about them on television in 2000. Here's some audio from the video vignette that was broadcast. It's nighttime in a kitchen just like yours. All is quiet. Or is it? The North American house hippo is found throughout Canada and the eastern United States. House hippos are very timid creatures and are rarely seen. But they will defend their territory if provoked. They come out at night to search for food, water, and materials for their nests. The favorite foods of the house hippo are chips, raisins, and the crumbs from peanut butter on toast. They build their nests in bedroom closets, using lost mittens, dryer lint, and bits of string. The nests have to be very soft and warm. House hippos sleep about 16 hours a day. That looked really real, but you knew it couldn't be true, didn't you? That's why it's good to think about what you're watching on TV and ask questions, kind of like you just did. A message from Concerned Children's Advertisers. And if there ever were a fantastical creature that I wish existed, it would be this one, the house hippo. Mm. Uh, I'd love to have one sit on my lap, you know, mm -hmm. just like little house hippo to yeah. uh, hi little house hippo to cuddle with. Matthew, uh, how would Steve take to a house hippo? Do you think <laughs> Steve is my house hippo? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> he is <def> he is definitely very house hippo esque. Yeah, he is. He's chunky and he's cute. He is. Um, that is a really memorable ad. Mm. It, it really has stuck out to me over the years and it keeps coming up. People keep talking about it, uh, on Facebook and places like that. Mm. So I had to include the North American house hippo as part of the show. That one. And do you remember the drugs, 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 which are good, which are bad. Drugs, <laughs> drugs, drugs. Ask your mom, ask your dad. 
I don't remember. That. Okay. That's another memorable one. It would have been, my mom would have said all bad. <laughs> and I would have promptly ignored, ignored her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's it for Dark Routine episode 175, Creepy Creatures and Canadian Cryptids. And before we move on to voicemails, if you have seen a house hippo or encounter any other cryptid, I want to hear from you. Please send me an email at darkpateenpodcast at gmail.com. And if your story's compelling, we might feature it on a future episode. Please indicate if you're willing to chat with me about this in a recorded phone call. So we might use your voice on a show. And we want to see your overly grainy photographs of the encounter. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it looks like what... Why are all the UFO photos taken with a potato? <laughs> we have these amazing cameras cameras in our pockets. But no, now. they use a potato and a stick. Exactly. Everything <laughs> looks terrible. Now on to voicemails. You can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 ptn If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Try and keep it under two minutes and often the best ones have been written out beforehand. We'd love to hear from you anyway, even if it's just to say hi. Look at Mike giving you guys homework. Or to tell us to go shit in our hats. <laughs> you can go shit in your hat right now. Um, here is our first voicemail, and it is from Christy in Kamloops. Hello, Christy. Hi, my name is Christy, and I'm phoning from Kamloops, British Columbia. I'm phoning for two reasons. I listened to your show for the first time over my lunch hour today, and I really appreciated it. Uh, it's something I know I'm going to probably spend some time binge watching or listening to. So thank you for that. And I had to mention because you said you didn't think anybody uses abacus anymore. I use an abacus on a regular basis. I'm blind, which is another reason I love podcasts. And I was taught how to use an abacus in school because it's a lot easier for me to do math um, without being able to see a pen and paper. The abacus works well. So I still use my abacus for keeping score when I'm playing crib, for quickly jotting down a number, doing a quick calculation, uh, counting my rows when I'm knitting, and, and things like that. Just thought I'd let you know there are still somebody or somebody, people <laughs> using abacuses. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing more of your shows. Wow. That's great. Thanks, Christy. That's really interesting. So that is so cool. When there's a solar flare that knocks out all the telecommunication systems. Yeah. Christy's going to save us. She's probably going to save when, us. When all the electronic devices don't work. Yeah. Christy's going to save us. Yeah. She'll be able to figure out uh, the change that you owe somebody because I can't do it in my head anymore. Yeah. And I, she can do lots of other stuff. Yeah. I, it's amazing. I, I now want to learn how to use an app because. Yeah. I, I remember learning it when I was in school, in elementary school, we learned an abacus, but I can't remember how to use it now. I, I, I would probably pick it up pretty quick, but. Yeah. Yeah. Next up, we have a caller from somewhere in Ontario. Hi guys. How are you today? I just got finished listening to your latest podcast about the stopwatch gang and, uh, my hometown was mentioned in it and my hometown's a very blink and you miss it kind of hometown, Joyceville. Um, you mentioned Joyceville Penn. My public school, where I went from kindergarten to grade eight, is only maybe a kilometer away from Joyceville Penitentiary. Uh, we had drills where if a uh, inmate got out, and what we had to do to run back into the school. Uh, at one point, an inmate escaped, actually broke into one of my neighbor's houses, and his dog bit him on the ass. Anyway, 
Uh, keep up the good work. Love your podcast. Go take a shit in your hat, boys. Bye. <laughs> Bit him in the ass. Bit him in the great. ass. You know, uh, they had a, a prison right next to a center school in near Lunenburg in Nova Scotia. Yeah. And you could actually see the prisoners outside wow. from the playground on the school. Wow. Uh, so I guess it's like the teachers would say things like, well, if you want to end up there. Just be an arse, and I want, we'll send you over there. I wonder how Joyceville got its name. Was it, do you think, like, there was this woman named Joyce? In the probably. Place? Okay. Yeah, either that or somebody had a last name, Joyce. Oh. We should have probably looked that up. Yeah. Because we don't want to offend people from Joyceville, but. Yeah. But whatever. That's cool. Yeah. But that, that's, 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 that's a fun story. It is a yeah. fun story. You just, you got a, a dog bit a prisoner <laughs> on the bottom. I like that bit. Next, we have Mark from Isle Madame in Nova Scotia. Hi, folks. Mark here from beautiful downtown Poulamon, Isle Madame in Nova Scotia. I uh, started listening to your podcast about six months ago when I saw an episode on Mindy Tran. At the time, I lived a couple of streets up from the Tran family when it happened, and I spent the next, the following day uh, assisting Kelowna Search and Rescue. One of the hardest things I ever had to do was tell her dad we had no luck. The hopeful look he gave us uh, turned to despair instantly. Silver lining was I joined uh, Squamish Search and Rescue four years later because of Mindy and spent 13 years helping people out. Amazing experience. Love the podcast and keep them coming. And oh yeah, go crap in your cap, babies. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Wow. Thank you, Mark from Isle Madame in Nova Scotia. You've been all over the place. You're like me, back and forth between both coasts. And thank you, Mark, for doing that job. I'm, right? I always admire those people. The search and rescue folks uh, are called out all hours of the day and night. And uh, it's uh, obviously, I wouldn't say a thankless job because it is rewarding. Mm. I used to do some volunteer fire department stuff when I was a kid, but, uh, I never went to the adult fire yeah. department because I'm too young, but, uh, but yeah. So shout out to all those people who give those hours for, uh, search and rescue. Yeah. Much appreciated. We need a lot around here. Yes. Don't ski off the marked <laughs> trails. And here we have one from Wisconsin. Uh, th this call cuts out a little bit, but it was really well thought out. So I thought, let's play. Cuts out, but worthy. Yeah, let's play Gloria's call. Gloria. Hi, Mike and Matt. My name is Gloria, and I'm from southeastern Wisconsin. I am beyond grateful for your show. I have been listening for over a year now, and it's been an invaluable tool to help boost my mood while dealing with depression and a little divorce. Thank you for giving your important stories with us, connecting. With you both and the light you shed on these dark stories is how we start to heal as a community. This wouldn't be dark poutine if not for your own stories and the passion you bring to this medium. And I love seeing Steve's adventures on Barnyard, and I hope you all up there in Canada are able to enjoy the summer as it starts to kick into gear. Thank you again. And do not forget to take a massive shit in your hat. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs> Not just a little shit, but a, a massive, massive one. Shit. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gloria. That, that <laughs> A massive one. I'm I just picture a massive crap in a hat. It's not good. I'm going to keep posting pictures of Steve. You have to. I do. You have to. I know you've been upset with Facebook. I yeah, mean, I obviously. I was upset with Facebook, but I realized like 
honestly, the funny thing is yeah. I was more so up about thinking about quitting it because of dark poutine fans than, than like my, my family and friends, sorry, family and friends. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the main reasons I'm still on Facebook is for dark poutine. Yeah. When the Yumber Yard went away, the first Yumber Yard, you can find Yumber Yard 2.0 mm-hmm. uh, now, but uh, we had worked really hard to build a group of 10,000 people and then overnight it was gone. Gandhi, I know. Yeah. So I'm going to keep, uh, I think I'm just going to focus on Yumber Yard and, and Barnyard Steve for a while. Yeah, there you go. Yep. So when you're posting on the new Yumber Yard, try and keep the serial killer, Osama bin Laden, Hitler memes away because yes. those are the ones that got us gone. So yeah, I got booted. Yep. The, last week, this would piss me off because mm-hmm. it said, you know, there was nobody. And then like it said, uh, history channel at 3 a.m. And it showed a picture of Tupac and Osama bin Laden like at a party just going, hey. Yeah. And I'm like, how innocuous, but it got booted, so that pissed me off. Yeah, it was really stupid. Yeah. That's it for voicemails. You can leave us one at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. PTN. PTN. Yeah, now it's time for patrons. Patreon, Patreon. shoutouts. <laughs> First up we have, from Oceanside, California, Paula Seaman. Hello, Paula. Paula, what does Paula do? In Oceanside, California. She is a psychotherapist to people who think they have seen spider bats. Oh, there you go. Yes. Uh, I would think that the person who told the story of the spider bat should probably go to see Paula in Oceanside. If you're listening, call Paula. Call Paula. I wonder if Paula works for uh, one of the uh, different ad places. Okay. Maybe. I cough now. Yeah. <coughs> Sorry, I was choking. No, it's okay. I'll edit it out. Next we have from Pentic next we have from Penticton, Penticton, British Columbia, Gemma Houston. Hello, Gemma. Gemma. That's a good British name, Gemma. Yes. Yes. I knew lots of Gemmas in London. Of course yep. you did. And what do you think Gemma does up there in Penticton? Gemma is a house hippo whisperer. Oh, she whispers to house hippos. Yeah, if they get a little bit too house hippo-y and oh. she just calms them down. She's like uh, the Caesar of House hippos. What Caesar is to Caesar, whatever his name is to dogs. You've never seen this Caesar guy? No. Oh, anyway. <laughs> I'm staring here at Mike across the table yeah, going, exactly. thinking, Just what does the, Caesar Augustus have to do with It's not this? Caesar Augustus. <laughs> I was going to say Caesar Romero too, but. I don't think that's him no. either. Apparently Caesar Romero used to have, like to have his young boys uh, throw lemon or lemon wedges at his bum. That's an interesting fetish. Yeah, uh, Gilbert Gottfried talks about that a lot on his show. So anyway, thank you, Gemma. Thanks, <laughs> keep, Gemma. Keep on whispering to those hippos. Next we have from my hometown, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Well, I guess my birthplace, Emily Wilkins. Hello, Emily. What does Emily do back there in Halifax? Halifax? Mm-hmm. Uh, she is a huntress of the loop guru. Oh, there you go. A loop guru hunter. Yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, what is her preferred weapon? Crossbow. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Crossbows work. Yeah. I guess. She has like this really bright purple one. Oh, nice. Yeah. Just so you can see her coming. Yeah. And it's a little bit stylish. And yeah. Kind of just... a, a little bit uh, punk, you know? Yeah. 
Well, we didn't have any donut money donors this week, but that's cool. It's all right. We didn't need donuts this we, week. We, <laughs> I've been trying to cut down on the donuts. <laughs> Thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, and maybe future, for your generosity. <laughs> it helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine, or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Don't forget my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please, please, please take time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Goodbye. On showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on showcase. Stream on Stack TV.